Hello there, Siege of New Hampshire fans. Mick Rowland here. This week, I'm pleased to share with you the results of my little survey and address the questions you sent in. Let's start with that first survey question about which character you'd like to see get more ink. To my surprise, the hands-down winner was Andy, with almost 40% of the votes. Margaret and Charon came in second, followed by Mr. Landers. The others got votes in single digits. Lindsay, Martin's adult daughter, got a write-in vote, as did Carlos Perez. Thanks for your feedback. As Book 6 is taking shape, I think you'll get some of what you wanted. Not sure about Lindsay, though. She was stranded in Wisconsin by the outage. Not sure how I might work her in. Up next, the questions you sent in. As I said last week, the questions tended to bunch up around a few common topics. So, here's our first question. What caused the outage? And, a related question, what was the geopolitical climate at the time? Was it a storm on the horizon or a bolt from the blue? I get this question from time to time. But, to address the second question first, the geopolitical environment was pretty stable, rather like today. Troubles boiling in lots of different places, but nothing overt. It was a bolt from the blue. As for the cause, when I was creating the story, I had the reason for the outage all figured out. I didn't spell it out in the story, at least not quickly or obviously anyhow. That's why you're wondering about it. A big reason for my not spelling it out was that early on, I decided that I was going to avoid using the omniscient narrator voice. That's that literary device where the author is speaking, basically, telling the reader things that the characters in the story couldn't know. I noticed that the omniscient narrator was a pretty common feature in a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction. Things like, while Jim was loading up his jeep for a weekend of hunting, little did he know that out in space a huge solar storm had erupted, dot dot dot. Things like that. I felt like such insider information took some of the mystery out of the story. If the reader knows that the outage was caused by, say, a coronal mass ejection, then the readers can tap into a whole set of knowledge that the characters can't. That that didn't seem fair. I thought back to the times when I'd been stuck in a power outage. One of the first questions was always, is it just us or something bigger? I'd take a flashlight to check out the breaker box, then look at the power lines leading to the house, etc. Are the neighbor's lights on or not? If everyone else's house is dark, then you wonder, well, when would the lights come back on? You had no way of knowing, and really, there wasn't much you could do about it. You had to deal with the darkness you had. If it was something like the major outage in the Northeast in 2003, you'd eventually find out that the outage was far bigger than just your local substation. It was the whole state. Several states, actually. But you wouldn't find that out until much later, well after the lights came back on and people had time to investigate the causes. Only then would you find out that it was a software bug, an alarm that didn't go off when it should have, that began the cascade of failures. But thinking back to something like the Northeast outage in 2003, how much would it have changed what the homeowner had to do during the outage to have known that it was a software glitch? That homeowner still had to use flashlights to see, still had to cook meals on their patio grill, 
and still had to tap into their stored water, etc. The lights would come on again the next day, but how would Mr. Homeowner know that? For book one, and then carrying out through the rest of the siege stories, I wanted to create some of that mystery that outages have. Would the lights come back on in an hour? The next day? The next week? Martin doesn't know why, exactly, the power went out. But when he heard that the outage included distant places like Chicago and Texas, and maybe London too, he knew, at least, that it wasn't something local that could be repaired quickly. It could take a week or more, he figured. Since he missed the last bus, and the trains weren't working, apparently, he opted to walk home rather than be stuck in the city for a week or more. Even with his hunch, he still doesn't know much. He's operating on limited information. But that's all anyone ever has, right? None of us get the benefit of an omniscient narrator to clue us in. That's the why that the cause isn't spelled out clearly. When I was posting chapters of Book One on that Prepper Fiction forum, the readers eventually started asking why the power went out. I explained my avoidance of the omniscient narrator thing. That satisfied them. Yeah, well, actually, it didn't satisfy them for long. They kept asking. To answer their persistent questions, I wrote a prologue, a little prequel tale, a sort of chapter zero, that explained what happened. And I posted that to the forum folks. I asked them if they thought it helped the story or not. Most of them said they kind of preferred not knowing after all. Now, maybe that's because my cause wasn't as sexy as they thought it might be. Well, whatever. Based on their feedback, I didn't include the prologue in the published book. Instead, I tried to leak out clues during the story, such that the readers could start to piece together the reason that the power went out. Maybe I was too subtle about this, too, huh? This piecing together of clues is kind of what happens to the rest of us non-omniscient folks during a crisis. We find out why our power went out, little by little, sometimes only well after the fact. I did share that prologue with the Siege Club members on Buy Me a Coffee and my patrons on Patreon, a membership perk. To give you a quick summary and actually answer your question about the cause, the prologue is a tale of two low-level programmers in Iran, part of a team employed by a mysterious Asian man. It's left vague because low-level minions don't usually get to know the big picture. Was he Chinese? North Korean? Some Davos NGO? Did it matter? Their programming team's project was a software virus that was supposed to gather and accumulate knowledge about the weaknesses of America's power grid so that they could take down America. But one of the two programmers discovers that their virus has been quietly growing beyond its intended mission. It was learning about everyone's power grid. If and when the bosses decide to throw the switch, their virus would take down everyone's grid, not just America's, including their host country's grid. If you're super curious and want to read that prologue, consider a membership. Yeah, yeah, that's a promotional plug. Anyhow, I chose a terrorist-caused outage because EMPs were so super common in prepper fiction. It seemed like just about everyone and their dog had an EMP survival story. Sometimes it was a CME, but almost always the result was a nearly 100% effective taking out of everything electronic in an almost magical sort of way. I wanted something different, so I opted for a terrorist action. But I also wanted the outage to be global, 
to prevent there being areas like Canada, for instance, from being fully grid up and therefore able to send aid and make the outage more temporary. I had the virus take down everyone. There'd be no outside help. I hope that answered your question, uh, not just about why the grid went down, but also why I didn't spell it out more clearly in the stories. Another question that touches on the writing process was, how do you determine the personalities of the different characters in your books? That's a good question. I had to sit down and think about that one. The characters obviously have different personalities. Did it just happen? Did I have a process? After giving that some thought, I'd say that I do try to give each character some life. I try to make them a mix of good and bad traits so that they're not too simple too two-dimensional as characters. I also make a conscious effort to avoid stereotypes. The writer doesn't have to think too much with stereotypes. Everyone sort of knows what traits they're expected to have, but real people aren't that simple. Take the Candace character, for example. I had her in the story as a village antagonist. I didn't want the whole town of Cheshire to be in lockstep survival kumbaya. That's not realistic but I didn't want her to be just a remake of Cruella de Vil. She has her smug and condescending troublemaker side, but she also exhibits a genuine humanitarian side, working at the town farm and all. Even her betrayal of the town to the FEMA guy, Quinn, wasn't out of evil so much as out of a mistaken pessimism that the common folks really couldn't take care of themselves. She really believed that the people needed FEMA aid. She sincerely thought she was trying to help. Take Margaret as another example. Back in book one, before she even appeared on stage, as it were, I wanted to put Martin in an emotional dilemma, an actual test of his faithfulness. To do that, the wife that he is faithful to needed a personality that was a bit cool and businesslike in her marriage. That, to contrast with Susan's more open and needy personality. I mean... If Margaret was a huggy, affectionate wife, and Susan was an aloof, cold fish, Martin wouldn't feel any temptation, no would he? I guess I do like to pair up contrasting personalities. Not so blatant as good cop, bad cop, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but still contrasts. They, I think they make things more interesting, less predictable, and, I like to think, more realistic. The Andy character's personality started out as just an affable foil to the angry and fiery Mara. The college kid squatters weren't homogenous. Some friendliness, some hostility. But as the story went on, I got to liking Andy as comic relief. He wasn't just a buffoon. He was knowledgeable regarding wild edibles, but with a bit of a skater dude twist. A nutty professor at the undergrad level. I hope that helps. Mara got several questions. A few of you wanted to know how she learned all those survival skills. In putting together an answer to this question, my notes were starting to take on the form of a story outline by itself, a parallel prequel of sorts. I'm thinking now that it would make a good novelette, kind of on the order of Harold's Escape, which was a novelette, or which is a novelette, backstory of a character in Book Six. I posted the chapters of Harold's Escape online for my Siege Club members and patrons. I think I'll do the same for the Utopians. It was looking like an interesting story. But, so as to not just be a big tease, I will answer the question. 
The Utopians were all UNH students at the time of the outage. They were from different backgrounds, but all had in common a worry about the eventual collapse of the corrupt capitalist imperialist patriarchy. When the patriarchy did collapse, they expected it to be disastrous. So they planned to bug out to some remote woods and become the seed of an ideologically pure and politically correct new society. With surviving the anticipated collapse in mind, each of the group had been learning and practicing some bushcraft skills, like foraging, making cordage, hunting, herbal medicine, etc., such that the group would be self-sufficient out in the wild. Mara was the hunter, obviously. When the grid went down, it wasn't quite the sort of collapse that they expected, but it was close enough. They bugged out to what they imagined was the middle of nowhere, ending up in the gravel pit out behind Martin's property. They learned survival skills from each other. By the time their utopia failed, Mara had picked up the bushcraft skills of the others. One listener wanted to know why Mara doesn't talk. Actually, early on, she did talk. She had angry words for Martin at their first meeting, you might recall. She'll talk again later. Uh, we're not there yet, but she starts talking again, a little, at least, in Book 5. What made her mute was the emotional trauma of being almost abducted and expecting to be raped. You probably recall the scene where Martin and Margaret interrupt the big man as he's got Mara tied up and is trying to haul her back to his hidden camp. I had figured that loss of speech, or refusal to speak, was an outward symptom of an emotional trauma she felt at her almost abduction, which was no minor event to her. I had in mind how common it is nowadays on college campuses for the youth to really have no clue what the real world is like. They live in such a sheltered bubble where even the most trivial things, like microaggressions, are emotionally devastating and send them fleeing to safe spaces and counseling. They chant phrases like, words are violence, or even, silence is violence, which makes me think that they've never actually experienced any real violence. If they had ever been beaten down and left for dead, would they really think that someone's verbal silence on their cause du jour was exactly the same thing as a savage beating? No one in law enforcement or the military who've seen actual physical violence would ever think that words were exactly the same thing. There's an old maxim that goes something like, a neoconservative is a liberal who got mugged. So, I pictured Mara as one of those protected youths who'd led a rather sheltered life growing up and in college, sheltered to where she actually believed that she was entitled to some sort of invincible protection from the unpleasantnesses of reality. As such, having a large man overpower her, intent on some physical violence, would be a huge emotional shock. There was no institutional framework to save her, no associate dean of niceness, no trauma counselors, no cohort of peers to chant reassuring slogans about their rights. It was just her up against a man twice her size, a big man with evil intent. It was the first time she felt completely and utterly powerless. The speechless symptom of her trauma, it does eventually fade. She does resume talking, but it's minimal. She's living alone in the woods, after all, so she doesn't really need to talk much, anyhow. She's a bit more conversational by Book Six. 
Another reader asked, What's going on in the cantons? I had been dropping hints here and there throughout the books to what life was like inside the cantons. This might be yet another case of my being too subtle. Malcolm told a bit of it when he was giving his backstory to Martin. Justine told a little bit about it to Susan. There's another glimpse of Canton life in Book 5 when a captured ne'er-do-well gives his backstory to Martin. And there's yet more in Harold's Escape, the novelette that I did for my patrons and Siege Club members. In pulling together some notes to address your question, it started to look like the materials for yet another novelette, too. A tale of life within and escape from Canton, Boston. That's all pretty loosely formed thus far, so no promises. But, back to your question, the cantons started out as a government solution to providing emergency aid to the populace. They amounted to the FEMA camp idea, but at a much bigger scale. Trying to take care of tens of thousands of citizens scattered all around the state was pretty difficult, logistically. It would be easier, the bureaucrats thought, if they could get all the people concentrated in a smaller area. All of those essential services could be distributed more efficiently. They could maintain order more easily, with everyone bunched into a tighter area. More people could be covered by fewer security personnel. As Andre's wife said back in Book One, they're all about the control. With the Canton system, citizens were encouraged, at first, to abandon their homes in the outlying or rural areas and move into the designated urban centers, the Cantons. As per usual, the sales pitch was that it was for the people's own good, for their safety. Many complied, especially the unprepared who had run out of food, water, heat, etc. In good times, urban areas, even as concentrated as they are, tend to have an inefficient use of housing. One or two people living in apartments that could house five or six, or empty apartments, or even whole empty buildings. Super wasteful. There's room for many, many more if you work at packing them in. Canton managers oversaw placing of all of those displaced outlying folk into the otherwise empty spaces. When encouragement and then fear-mongering PR campaigns weren't enough to dislodge the reluctant countryside, the government created new laws that made it illegal to live outside of the canton. This forced in more. But, as we heard in Justine's backstory, there were still a few defiant holdouts who went underground rather than live in the cantons. Life in the cantons wasn't cushy. There was no power in the apartments or the makeshift dorms, of course. There was still the global outage. People couldn't cook for themselves. FEMA storage provided the food. Neighborhood kitchens served the meals. Government control of the distribution of food allowed for tight portion control and rationing. There would be no wasting, no gluttony, no fussy eaters. Here's your cup of mush. Move along. No complaining. Healthcare was similarly handled through neighborhood clinics. Aid could be managed and controlled. In winter, it was easier to provide some limited heat for a whole building rather than each house or unit having its own heat, which, in better times, residents would waste by keeping their apartments warmer than necessary. All of those people in the cantons became a sort of captive labor force. Of course, the old grid-based economy was gone, but there was a lot of manual work to be done, working in a food kitchen, sweeping streets, communal laundries, water distribution, sanitation, etc. 
All the work was for the operation of the canton, and was done basically in exchange for room and board in the canton. People might not like the work they were ordered to do, but what choice did they have? It was illegal to go anyplace else. And, as happens so often in human organizations, the original mission of helping the unprepared citizens rather quickly devolved into the despotism of control over the rabble. Order must be maintained. Obedience is required. Discord is not allowed. Since the ruling bureaucrats control the resources—food, water, heat, health care—they have the leverage to coerce the people into compliance. Like I said, all this seems like good fodder for another parallel story, another novelette. Thanks for the suggestion. A few questions were more about story details than process or big picture. One had to do with Trevor. This reader asked, I thought Trevor's arm was hurt during a shootout. Was I mistaken? If not, I didn't hear anything about it afterwards. Yes, Trevor's arm was injured in the firefight near the end of Book 2. The injuries weren't too severe, though. They're described as being shrapnel-like wounds from a bullet that fragmented as it went through the metal and mechanisms in the corridor. So he wasn't truly shot in the arm, but hit by metal fragments. Being smaller and at a slower speed, they caused less damage, more like several flesh wounds. That said, it's a pretty common physiological reaction for an injured area, like an arm, to go weak in a sort of shock response to an injury. At the time of his capture, it would feel more severe than it really was. That's to say that he was able to heal from it fairly quickly. But I do see what you mean. There's no other mention of his injury. I'm in the process of cleaning up the earlier books, mostly odd typos that escaped everyone's eye prior to publication. I think I'll go back in and mention his arm in a sling or bandages or something to add some continuity. Good catch. Another detail question was, why, back in Book 1, didn't the townspeople get out and dig latrines before their septic systems failed and the ground was frozen? That's an interesting point. Martin does voice concern about too many people living in his house using his septic system, by the time he starts to worry, though, it's getting a bit late in the year for digging latrines. One reason they don't start digging latrines is that septic systems aren't, generally, a short-cycle maintenance item. If well-maintained, a thousand-gallon septic tank can handle a family of four's, uh, use for several years. While the folks who pump out septic tanks will tell you that you have to do it every other year or so, which is more business for them, of course, my tank had gone four or five years with a family of four using it. When the guy came to pump it, he commented about it being less than half full. So, Martin, and probably others in town, weren't too worried that their septic systems wouldn't make it through the winter. That said, you're right that it would become a problem eventually. That's why I included a bit about that in Chapter 1 of Book 6. Here's a little teaser for Book 6 on the topic of septic systems in a grid-down world. <clears throat> As Martin rounded the corner of the house, a sudden waft of potent sewage smell took away his breath and caused him to stagger back a step. His eyes began to water. Between blinks, he could see Andy hauling up a tall pole from a hole in the ground at the edge of the front garden. It was the septic tank access hatch. Martin took a few steps to the left to allow a mild easterly breeze to envelop him, 
Fresh air never smelled so good. He wiped the residual tears from his eyes with his fingertips. Andy noticed the movement in his peripheral vision. He dumped the black sludge from a bucket that he had raised, then swished his gloved hands in a pail of soapy water. He lowered the painter's respirator from his face, raised the swim goggles to his forehead, and stepped closer to Martin. "'You're, you're doing that today?' Martin asked, backing up a step to keep some distance between himself and Andy's dark spattered apron. I, "'I said it would be a good idea to do sometime, but I didn't mean today.' Oh, sure, hey, your indefinite timeline was crystal clear, Mr. S. At least as crystal clear as a nonspecific adverb can be, I suppose. But yeah, if today qualifies, you know, technically, as sometime. And it is the ideal day, you know. Steady breeze out of the east instead of our usual westerlies meant that the inevitable, um, fragrances would be carried out over the driveway and over the meadow instead of into the house. I figured you'd be all in favor and not stinking up the house. Well, yes, but there's work to do on the root cellar and firewood to stack. Oh, comprendo. As soon as I get maybe five or six more wheelbarrows of sledge out, we could call it done enough and be on to other chores. My trusty bucket isn't as quick as a professional honey wagon could do it, yeah, but it's a whole lot cheaper. Yeah, that is, if anybody's still doing honey wagons, and they probably aren't. Six more? How many wheelbarrows have you done already? Oh, that one there, that's my lucky number seven. Lucky? Yeah, well, sorta. I'm not sure a load of semi-liquid fragrance has much to do with luck. I plan to do 14 loads, you see? So number seven over there is my over-the-hump load. Yay, right? It helps, you know, with tough tasks that have no apparent reward to them and are actually kind of revolting, to break them down into sections. I mean, one load is only like 7%. Not all that celebrational, right? Nobody tosses confetti and blows little paper horns for 7%. But four loads? Whoa, that's over a quarter done. Seven? Ha, that's half. Woohoo! Although I can't throw any imaginary confetti until it's actually dumped. Dumped where? You're not just pouring that stuff out on the ground, are you? It'll wash into the... Oh, heck no, Mr. S. I am shocked and hurt that you would even think that I would ever do anything so totally Exxon Valdez. Oh, uh, well, I, I didn't mean to. Oh, hey, that's okay. I'm just teasing on your leg. I know you didn't mean anything. Oh, no, I'm dumping this black gold into my humanure bin, Andy said proudly. Ever since Trevor moved out, and I gotta say, he and Chandra made such a cute couple, I loved how they'd twitter little nothings to each other, thinking that they were so soft-spoken that no one else could hear, but, but they were louder than they realized, and it was hard not to smile at Trev being called Puff Muffin. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really cute, and... Andy, Martin said with a scolding look. Oh, sorry. Uh, as I was saying, with Trev gone, it's just been me supplying the, um, fuel for my humanure bin. Not enough inputs, you know. It's starting to cool off. Oh, uh, that's bad. But with this humongous federal grant-sized infusion of semi-solids, the bin should be cooking again. Martin could only sag in acquiescence. Trevor's departure was another of those less-than-compassionate moments where Martin was seeing people primarily as workers for his task list. Trevor had been a hard worker around the property and sorely missed. When Chandra's nurse, Ethos, compelled her to return to Manchester to help treat the typhus and cholera outbreaks, it was little surprise that Trevor wanted to go with her. Martin had been more focused on Trevor as labor than he was on Trevor as a person. Martin felt like a jerk. And he was right. The septic tank did need to be emptied, at least somewhat. 
Andy's humanure pile would be a valuable addition to the fertility of next year's garden. It just didn't get the root cellar dug this year. Oh, hey, I'd, I'd like to keep chatting out here where the air is amazingly fresh, but old lucky number seven is calling to me. Can you hear it? Andy cupped his hand to his ear. Eh, yeah, I don't hear it either. Uh, poetic metaphors must be ultrasonic. Well, either way, uh, I still gotta get to it. He pulled the painter's respirator back up over his nose and mouth, and the swim goggles down over his eyes. Talk to you later, Mr. S. Martin wanted to insert some parting nag about Andy working on the root cellar when he was done, but it felt petty. Andy was doing a disgusting but vital task that would keep the Simmons' septic system functional for another year. How could Martin complain about that? He sighed and headed for the shed to get a shovel. He'd at least do a little digging on the root cellar by himself before cutting down more saplings to become bean poles. There, that's the end of the teaser quote. And, just to repeat my promotional plug, I am posting chapters of Book 6 for my patrons and Siege Club members to read. You could become a member and pre-read Book 6. A more general question had to do with off-grid workload. The characters are tasked with long hikes, load-carrying, life-and-death shootouts, and daily mental stress. How do they do all that on very meager food rations? If we did find ourselves in such a grid-down world, all the manual chores would definitely be tough on us. We're not used to it. We've gotten pretty accustomed to electric motors doing a lot of our work for us. We've also gotten spoiled on being carried from point A to point B by our cars, to the point that we grumble if we're forced to park on the outer edge of a store's parking lot. People will drive around and around a parking lot for 20 minutes to find a closer parking space so they don't have to walk as far. But, while we've definitely gotten soft, I don't think it's irreversible. People used to walk a lot until about 100 years ago, back around 1900 and before, in small New Hampshire towns, people walked almost everywhere. All these old colonial houses that you see here, federal style, Greek revival, etc., houses built in the pre-automobile days, all have their front doors facing the road. That's where the visitors come from. That front door was the primary entrance to the house. It wasn't until the 1920s, when the personal automobile had become part of the family, that the side door facing the driveway, or the garage door, had become the home's primary entrance. Those old front doors became little-used ornamental features. Nowadays, no one comes walking up the road, but back in the day, nearly everyone did. People walked two or three miles to the general store and back, carrying their sack of flour or keg of molasses back home. Some people had horses and buggies, but a lot of the average folk didn't. They just walked. Farmers had their workhorses, but they were reluctant to spend the horsepower on an errand into town when there was hay to mow or a field to plow. By and large, most people walked to their part-time job at the sawmill, or they walked to visit neighbors. They walked to church on Sundays, even though the church could be a few miles from home. In a historical side-note trivia, many of today's towns in southern New Hampshire started out as split-offs from original and larger land grants. The original land grants were on the order of 10 miles square, but with the early village and its one church situated in one corner. One of the rules back then for being given official town status was the requirement to have a church. 
When people started settling the farther reaches of the land grants, they didn't like having to walk seven or eight miles, one way, to get to church. That's like three hours of walking. So they petitioned the state to allow them to carve off a new town and build a church closer to them. The bigger grants got broken up eventually into more walkable-sized towns, each with a church that was maybe only an hour's walk away. Speaking of walking to church, I was reading a young woman's memoir a while back in which she talked about walking barefoot to church on Sundays until they got within sight of the church. They would then stop and put on their nice Sunday shoes. Back before industrialization, shoes were handmade and comparatively expensive. No cheap disposable sneakers from China. People like that young woman didn't want to wear out their good shoes by walking all those miles in them, so they'd go barefoot until the last minute. You'd have to think those people back then had pretty tough feet with all that barefoot walking. They didn't eat lavishly, either. Really, it wasn't until recent times, with the advent of large-scale industrial farming and global shipping, that there's been such a surplus of food that we, as a culture, can eat ourselves into obesity. Food has become entertainment rather than fuel. Back before refrigeration, stored food wasn't an infinite supply. People ate less to make their supplies last longer. And yet, they still did all their manual chores. My point is that people a hundred years ago were more accustomed to walking long distances, carrying loads, and working hard. But they weren't triathlon athletes. They didn't have the sculpted planet fitness bods with rippling abs. That sort of physique is a luxury too, really, if you consider how much time in the gym it takes to get it and maintain it. I've looked at photos of town residents at the local historical society, people from the late 1800s and early 1900s. They look like totally average people, not buff Navy SEALs. But these were the people who walked everywhere and did the manual labor. You can see what I mean, if you want, by doing a web search for farmer 1890s and click on images. You'll see what probably looked like the people that I saw. People who walked miles routinely, worked hard all day, didn't eat lavishly. They looked like pretty ordinary people. Being ordinary myself, I take some comfort in their ordinariness. I'm willing to bet that the ordinary people of Cheshire felt a lot of aching muscles for a while as they got reacquainted with manual labor, but they would toughen up. They didn't have much choice. Of course, most of us could use a little toughening up ourselves, but we could do it. It's easier now, while the grid isn't down. We could ease into it instead of being thrown into it, like the characters in the siege stories. We could start out small, like take a walk as far as you're comfortable, and then add five more minutes. Then, for your next walk, add five more minutes, etc. After a while, you could be walking a few miles too. You could use a manual coffee grinder for your morning brew, if you usually use an electric grinder. You could make a loaf of bread dough by hand instead of in a bread maker. Cut a board with a handsaw, etc. Look for some ways to do a task manually instead of letting a machine do it for you. I'm not talking about for the rest of your life, necessarily. Although, if you were to give up on electric can openers for life, I think you'd probably be okay. Oh, sure, a manual task will take a little longer, but give it a try. I think you might be surprised how actually survivable most day-to-day -day tasks are when done manually, without the grid. Sure, there'll be more physical work, but that's the toughening up part. 
you can get a feel for what daily life would be like without the grid, and, as such, that life actually might be survivable. I'm not trying to make this sound like one of those social media challenge things. If you did do some task manually, that you usually do with a machine, I'd like to hear about it. Let me know how it went for you. Well, that's it for your listener questions. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week.